God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thanks so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there, so we bring the service to you, wherever you are. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to the book of James? That's where we're going to be today. And we'll also show those verses up here in the video for you, just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about standing in faith. You know, today we're beginning our journey through the book of James. It's only five chapters. We just completed the book of Hebrews. And now the very next book after the book of Hebrews is the book of James. It immediately follows the book of Hebrews. And in the first chapter, the author, James, spends just a single verse greeting the intended readers. Then James gets right to the point about what the Holy Spirit has given him to write about. But first, let's talk a little bit about James. James is a unique author of New Testament books because he is the actual half-brother of our Lord. And of course, I say half-brother because they had the same mother. But then Jesus was born in the virgin birth. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and she conceived and bore a child. But James, on the other hand, was one of the sons of Joseph and Mary together. So he was a half-brother of Jesus. Now, you can imagine in any family that has brothers and sisters, anytime you grow up with someone, you probably don't think that highly of them. You probably think that there's all kinds of things that they did that you didn't like. They disagreed with you on times about various things. And you're probably thinking, well, like, what's the big deal about my brother Jesus? And so probably that's the way his brothers were, the half-brothers of Jesus. When they looked at him, they thought, oh, what's the big deal? But now James is a unique specimen in our studies today because he is basically now talking about the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, he was his half-brother. Yeah, they grew up in the same place, in the same town, with the same family. And probably James didn't really think that Jesus was so holy at that time. But yet, after seeing the risen, resurrected Jesus the Lord, after seeing Him put in that tomb, and then seeing Him living again after what happened to Him, after going through death and being dead and buried in the earth for three days, and then He sees Him risen and resurrected, James now knows that his half-brother is the Messiah, Jesus the Lord. And if you think about it, this promised Messiah was going to come. He was prophesied throughout the scriptures, throughout the Tanakh, the prophets, the Nevi'im, the Kentuvim, the writings and the prophets of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, as we say in English. And he was prophesied in all of those areas. Well, he was prophesied that he would be a man but it was prophesied also that he would be God at the same time. And we've talked much about that as we went through the book of Hebrews about how he was the God-man who came, how God himself had to come, become a man, and give his life for the sins of mankind. Why? 
because there was no blemish-free man. There was no man without sin that would qualify at being the spotless, blemish-free lamb whose blood could atone for the sins of mankind once and for all, forever. Well, James now has seen Jesus resurrected, and there's no doubt in his mind who his half-brother really was. And we're going to find that out as we go through the book of James and as we read this. And as I said, there's only one verse here that's a greeting. And right after that, James gets right down to the point about what the Holy Spirit has put on his heart to write about. And in chapter 1, the subject is going to be trials. And specifically, enduring the times of trials or standing in the faith in the times of trials. We all have trials in life. Unexpected setbacks come along that just seem to take the wind out of your sails. Isn't that the way it goes? Things were going so good, but then something happened to you and now you just don't know what to do. Someone said something bad about you on social media and now you're trying to do damage control and get that under control. That person who used to be your friend is saying bad things about you to other people. These are the kind of trials that people today face. And we think about these trials as being serious and they just are tragic in our life when we see these things happen. But come on, it's only social media. People are only saying words. But the people James is writing to, they're the Jewish people who have been separated from Israel, scattered to the other nations because of persecution. Remember in the book of Acts that as Saul was persecuting the Christians and delivering them up to the chief priests and to be jailed there at Jerusalem, persecution was so intense throughout the Christian community, the believers were being scattered out of Israel and into the other nations. And that's what happened to them. So James says he's writing to them. And they're being persecuted for believing in Yeshua, Jesus, as we say in English. Yeshua as the Mashiach, the Messiah, as we'd say in English, and the Lord. He is the Messiah and Lord. And some have even had their property take away, some, some, taken away, some of those believers. And others have even been beaten. There's always a constant temptation to fold under times of trial. To just say, well, I'm tired of this. I don't want to be beaten all the time. I don't want to be in hiding all the time. I could just give up. I could just deny Jesus and they wouldn't bother me anymore. There's that temptation. But heaven is at stake. Everlasting life is at stake. You don't want to lose that. There's nothing this world has to offer there's nothing it can give us that would be an exchange for everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven. And James is writing to these Jewish believers to encourage them. He wants to encourage them to stand firm in faith. Stand firm in the trials. Endure that persecution. Have your eyes on heaven. He's writing to them to stand in faith. And that's what this chapter today is talking about. Let's take a look at it together, beginning in verse 1 of James chapter 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Now, stop right there because you're not going to see any more hello, how are you, and it's good to be with you type talk from now on in this chapter. Basically, that first verse is it. That's a greeting. Now, if you're familiar with the writings of Paul and other people and everything, you might notice that their greetings can be somewhat long sometimes. But James is getting right to the point. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think about this. James was a half-brother of the Lord. He was the half-brother of Jesus, the man. God became a man named Yeshua, and James was his half-brother. Instead of saying, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 1, he could have said, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, and given himself a little bit of authority and, and said, you know, look, you better listen to me. I know these other people write to you, and they've got things to say, and, but I was actually the brother of the Lord. So this letter is from James, the brother of the Lord. But he didn't say that. He said, James, a bondservant of God. You know what a bondservant is? A bondservant is owned by the master. A bondservant chooses to be a servant of the master, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can't be a servant of two people. Jesus himself said that. You can't serve money and God. You'll either hold to the one and pull from the other, or you'll pull from the one and hold to the other. And I hope I said that right. But anyway, you get the point. James is now saying he's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's two. How can he be a bondservant of two masters? No, God and Jesus Christ are one God. Jesus said himself when he told Philip, he said, Philip, have I been so long with you that you have not known me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So now James is saying, I'm a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not two masters, that's one master. To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, he keeps going and says, greetings. Those tribes were scattered through persecution. You see, they weren't just taking a vacation because they just wanted to get away from the job or they just wanted to get away for a while. Maybe the weather was too hot there in Jerusalem. And so they just wanted to get away for a while and go to some place and do some surfing or <laughs> something like that. You know, that would have been kind of hard to surf. They didn't have the surfboards in those days. I'm, I'm not sure what you would have surfed instead. But anyway, they were trying to get, they weren't trying to get out for a vacation. That's what I'm saying. They weren't taking some time off. They were scattered abroad because they were driven out of Jerusalem by the persecution. The persecution was so bad. Believers were being killed. They were being beaten. Their property was being taken from them. All of these different things and people had just gotten to the point to where they did not tolerate believers. There was this some sort of supernatural, spiritual hatred toward believers. And I have to tell you, today in the United States and some places around the world, 
that supernatural hatred of believers in Jesus Christ still exists. Some of the people don't even know why they hate Christians so much. They just do. They're fine with other people. They're fine with street gangs that roam the cities and kill people. They're fine with all these other people. But if it's someone that calls himself a Christian and they're trying to do their best to live a, a life filled with love and joy and peace and to help others, then they hate those people. Now, we've talked about this concept before. When someone does good, society punishes them. What do I mean by that? Well, just look at the people that have a good reputation. And it just seems like all of these other people are just very angry with that person with a good reputation because he's making them look bad. That woman who's living for Christ is making these other people look bad. That man who professes to be a servant of Jesus Christ and cares for the poor, he's making these other people look bad. And so they have to get rid of him because when they compare their life to his, they don't like what they're seeing. Their people are seeing that their own life has fallen short of what it could be. They've been telling others, well, I can't do any more in life. I'm doing all I can do. And then you see some other person over here caring for the poor and doing good things, letting his light shine before men. And they see that person and they go, well, that's, he's making me look bad because I don't do those things. And so he gets angry at that person, starts persecuting them. And they try to come up with accusations. They try to come up with false witnesses to prove any way that they can that that person is really bad. So then it tries to destroy that person. And any time a person aspires to live good in this life and to stand for God, even though they're not hurting anybody, in fact, they're helping other people, there's going to be plenty of people that are trying to destroy that person doing good. And you can expect that. Jesus said himself, he said, just like they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And so James then says, I'm not only, a, I'm a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. In other words, he's saying, I'm a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, just like you to the 12 tribes, my brothers and sisters of the Jewish homeland who are scattered abroad because of the persecution, people hunting you down, people trying to beat you, people trying to hurt you, people trying to take all of your things from you and they don't want you to live anymore. I'm like you, James is saying. Greetings, that's verse one. Verse two then goes on to say, my brothers, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now you see how that kind of falls in with the greeting. Count it all joy when you fall into these various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is going to produce patience. Verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives all liberally. He gives wisdom to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him who asks, he's saying. Let's read that verse again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally 
and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What that verse says is, if you lack wisdom, you don't know what to do. You don't know which way to go in life. Now, I'm not talking about, do, do I want to eat the turkey sandwich today? Or am I going to have that cheese toast instead? God, I need wisdom. Oh, come on. I'm talking about the real problems in life. You can pray about anything. But problems, Lord, they're persecuting us. They're hunting us down. My friend was put in jail the other day. Should I move away from Jerusalem and go to these other places? Lord, I commit my way to you. And then you end up going there and, okay, God, please be with me. He says, if any of you, if any of you, not just some of you, not the special people, not the elites, not the people who are higher than anyone else, they think, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. You don't have to ask a priest. You don't have to ask a pastor. You ask it of God. And God, it says, gives all liberally, gives wisdom to all liberally. In other words, overflowing, more than enough, more than you even asked for. He's giving it freely and abundantly to you and without reproach. You know what that means in verse 5? Without reproach. That means God's not going to say to you, well, here you are asking for wisdom from me, but you haven't been doing right. Other day you did this and this and this, and that was a sin. And then last week you did this and this, and just this morning you did this and this and this. I'll have to think about whether I'm going to give you wisdom or not. No, verse 5 says, He gives to all liberally without reproach. In other words, He's well pleased that you're asking for wisdom. And even though you might have sinned and fallen short in the past, it doesn't matter. God's going to give you the wisdom, not only a little either. He's going to give you an abundant amount of wisdom, overflowing wisdom, and without even talking to you about the things that you've done wrong and how you're going to have to change to earn this wisdom. He wants you to be wise. That's what we're saying. And then verse 5 says and continues and says, and it will be given to him. Again, he affirms, God is going to do this freely to you. He's going to do it without reproach, without condemning you or trying to talk to you about problems that you've had, times you've fallen short of his law. He's going to give it to you overflowing. It's going to be perfect wisdom, just the right amount. And it's going to be given to you. And then at the end, he says it again, and it will be given to him. Verse 5 says, you know, basically, you ask God for wisdom, it's a done deal. That's what we say. In verse 6, he then continues, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You know what that means? Is that sea is just water. Before that wind was up, that sea was just calm and everything was okay. Then that wind came along from this direction, blew that water this way, and now those waves are tossing and turning this way, and the, the whole sea is a mess and everything. The water and the waves are just going over there. And then another wind comes from this direction, and now the water changes direction and the waves go this way. He's saying, don't be like a wave of the sea that's tossed and driven by the wind. Whatever people think you should do, 
that's what you're going to do. And then tomorrow they're going to change their mind and want you to do something else. And you're going to, oh, change directions and now do that. And you're always going to be going through life trying to please people. Why don't you throw down the anchor of the Word of God in those seas and not be tossed around by those waves. You just stay pointed to the horizon where you're waiting for the Lord to come and for everlasting life to set in. Don't be driven by the things of man and tossed about by the winds of the doctrine of people. And verse 7 then continues, For let not that man who's tossed around, not receiving faith, let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. For he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Basically, he's saying he doesn't have faith. He's letting the opinions of man make his own opinions in his heart. Stand for the Lord. You know, you've heard the saying, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Well, for us, that saying, if you don't stand for the Lord, you'll fall for anything. Verse 9 continues. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, the rich, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat, than it withers the grass, the flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. It's not longer there. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So what this verse and these verses here in 9, 10, and 11 are telling us, look, what I'm telling you is for the lowly brother as well as the rich. For the poor and the rich, it doesn't matter. Keep your eyes focused on the Lord, whether you're poor or rich. He's saying and warning the person, don't trust in your riches. For he says, no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and the beautiful appearance perishes. He's saying you can't take it with you. All that riches that you have in this life is just going to remain here. It's going to go to somebody else. You're not going to get to keep it. And the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. Now that last part of verse 11, the key thing is the word his. So the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. You know, it's possible to be rich and still be godly. I have many friends who are rich. Some are the most godly people I've ever met. Wonderful, wonderful people. And you know why? Because they don't consider money to be important. Yes, they've been blessed with money and possessions, and, but they're not seeking their own pursuits. They're seeking God's will for their life. And so that's why this section in verse 11 ends with the sentence, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. He won't fade away if he's in the pursuit of God. If he's pursuing righteousness and holiness with the Lord and he sets aside his own temptations, his own desires, his own lusts, and he says, I'm going to dedicate my life to following the Lord instead, he's not going to fade away because those things will endure. He's laying up treasures, true treasures, in heaven where moth and rust can't break in and destroy, a thief can't take. He's laying up treasures in heaven that will endure. 
when it's not pursuing his pursuits, but rather pursuing God's desires. So he's saying, whether you're rich or poor, let this heart be in you. Pursue the Lord. Don't think of your riches as things that are going to save you, because they won't. It's only Jesus Christ and believing on Him that will save you. Verse 12 then continues and says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone himself. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Verse 15 continues, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full, gro full grown, brings forth death. Now in these verses, from verse 12 through verse 15, he's talking about endure temptation. Now, you're going to be tempted. The Lord himself was tempted. And in the Lord's Prayer, we say, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God himself is not going to lead you into temptation. He's not going to tempt you himself. You're tempted when your own selfish and lustful desires give thoughts and opportunity for evil. You're tempted by evil in your own heart. And some of the things that you see, things on television, things that you see in society, some of the things that you see in media will tempt you. It'll tempt you in different ways. You have the pride of life that tempts you. It's tempting to look on things that you've built and say, oh, I did a pretty good job there. Wow, I really am an impressive individual. <laughs> but then you look at that and God says, that's pride. You have nothing but what you didn't receive at first from the hand of God. All the glory goes to God. It's not going to go to you. You are here for Him. That's why we're created, is to sing His praises, is to proclaim His goodness to others. So he says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Like, God, why are you bringing this temptation in front of me, that beautiful lady over there? God, you know I'm a married man, and, and she seems to be smiling at me. God, why are you giving me this temptation? Saying right here, God's not bringing that temptation. That's a desire in your own heart. You're tempted by evil. You have a chance to walk toward that temptation or to walk away from that temptation. I heard it said one time that you can't keep the birds from landing on your head, but you can keep them from making a nest there. In other words, don't give any time to that temptation. Yeah, those temptations are going to come against you. They're going to come your way, just flying at you like that bird. You just put your shield of faith up. They'll bounce right off that shield. Don't stand there and try to battle with them and everything to show them how strong you are. Let me just clear that up right now. You're not stronger than the devil. The devil and his angels are far stronger than you. 
He was a fallen angel. And look at the power that they had. Remember the power that they had. Remember the one angel in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, that killed 180-something thousand people from the enemy army in one night. One angel. So how are you going to fight against those evil angels, the demons? How are you going to fight against them? You can't do that. God's already said, I'll give you wisdom if you'll ask of me. He says, I won't hold it back for any reason. I like it when you ask for wisdom. I'll give you that wisdom. And now he's saying and promising to you, no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. And God, with that temptation, will provide a way to escape. He'll provide a way to get you out of that temptation to where you don't fall for that temptation. You be looking for the exit door when you're in that situation. Don't you try to come closer and say, well, I'll just go a little closer and look at this temptation a little more. I, I think I'll just go over here. I don't think that girl was looking at me while I'm here with my wife, but I'll just kind of just walk over that way just to see how serious she is. You know, I'll just try to get a little closer. The first thing you know, if you do that, you'll be falling in sin. You'll be tempted and not able to endure it. God made the way of escape, but you weren't even looking around for that exit door. You were too consumed by the desires of your own heart. The heart is exceedingly evil. Who can know it? That's what the scriptures say. Verse 4 then says, But each one of us is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Exactly what we just said. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. You see, each of these things is an evil seed. The desire is an evil seed. And if you leave it in the ground, you don't uproot it, throw it away, it's going to grow. And once it gets to a certain place in its growth, it's going to give birth to sin. And then sin is going to grow. And once it's full grown, it brings forth death. The soul that sins, it shall die. How many times have we covered that particular verse from Ezekiel over the past few weeks? The soul that sins, it shall die. So verse 16 says, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. But God's not giving you evil to tempt you, you see. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. He's not the Father of darkness. He's not the Father of sin. He's not the Father of wickedness. He's the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It's brilliant light, dwelling in the light that no man can approach. Verse 18 then says, Of His own He brought us forth by the word of truth, the Lord Himself, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. By His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. And we're not talking about earthly creatures here. We're talking about heavenly creatures, given everlasting life, living in His kingdom with Him. God created you to have fellowship with Him. He created you to live in the forever kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. That's why He gave you everlasting life. Instead of just a lot of years of life, He gave you everlasting life. It's without an end. 
It goes on and on and on forever, getting better and better and better. And He'll show you amazing things that will never run out forever, through eternity. And so He says in verse 19 now, So then, my beloved brothers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. The very important verses, verse 19 and 20. I want to read these again. He's talked about these trials. He's talked about standing against temptation, standing in faith, standing strong in faith, standing there, not being pushed around by the opinions of men, not being pushed around by what man says you should live like, not being pushed around by social media, not being pushed around by television telling you how to live your life. The Word of God is your shield, and it's your sword, and it is your armor, and you will find all that you need to make it safely through this life in the Word of God. That's why we say at the end of every one of these services that spend every day in the Word of God and in prayer, and God will do amazing things in your life. That's why we say that. So then, brethren, he says, My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Don't think so much about what you're going to say next. Don't try to get a whole lot of words out. Listen to what God is doing in your life. Make your decisions after you've heard the whole story. So many times we hear just a little bit and we decide what we're going to do when God was going to tell us the rest of the story. You need to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Don't get angry fast. Don't have what we call a hair trigger temper. You know, something that will set it off at the slightest little thing. No, just stand back. You know, someone says something to you, you stand back and think about it. You pray for that person. That's a great time to pray for that person and it lets you be slow to speak. Pray for that person while you're responding to what they say, and it lets you be slow to anger, slow to wrath. Because it says in verse 20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now you say, well, wait a minute, I've got to get even with them. They did something to me. It's only right that I pay them back. No, actually, the Bible says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord God. It's His. Why don't you just trust Him with the payback? And you pray for that person. When it really comes down to it, do you want to see them hurting because He's paying them back? Or would you rather see them on their way to the kingdom of heaven because they now believe in Him, because they've seen your example of living as a believer, turning that other cheek and praying for them when they were cursing you? When they were cursing you, you were blessing them. When they see your example, that will give an opportunity for them to believe on the one who will give them everlasting life. And then one day, you'll stand in the kingdom of heaven and see their smiling face as they smile at you because of the faithful witness that you provided in that day. Because you were standing in faith in God, not faith in your own works, not faith in your own payback, not faith in your own power and smarts to get even with them, but faith in God 
to win their heart over. Verse 21 then says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. See, there it is again, the words. But be doers of the word, it says in verse 22. Read this one again. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Let's read that again. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, some people go around, they say, Oh, I read the Bible. I've heard that it says I should live this way. I've heard that it says I should pray for my enemies. And yeah, I read that. Well, that's not the question. The question is, do you do that? Yes, it's easy to read the words, but do you pray for God to change your heart so that He will make that happen in your life so that others can read the Word of God? Here's what I'm saying. Some people will never open a Bible, but they'll see the words of the Bible acted out in your actions. You are a written epistle. You're a written word from the Lord when you act out these things that the Word of God commands and has you do. That is when they see the Word of God. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word is what the Scripture says. So even though they're hearing the Word from your life by seeing your actions, even though they're not reading it in the pages in black and white, they can have faith that wells up inside of them from seeing your example and being a light shining into the darkness. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you think you're righteous because you've heard the word of God, you're deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, it says in verse 23. Verse 24, for he observes himself, goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. I look in the mirror, oh my goodness, there's a lot of dirt right here under my left eye, a lot of dirt and everything I'm looking at in the mirror. And then I go, oh well, and I go away and I'm walking away and I'm just going through life and walking past everybody and the dirt's still on my face, but I don't see it anymore because I don't have the mirror there. And so I think everything's okay. Be smart. When you see it, do something about it. When you see the problem, do something about it. Don't just go around and say, ah, I read that. I don't need to do that. Really? You going to leave that dirt on your face? Verse 24 says, For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Don't be a man who forgets what kind of man you are. Don't be a woman who forgets what kind of woman you are. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and God's word and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks that he's religious, verse 26 says, and yet he does not bridle his own tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Oh, we better read this one. If anyone among you thinks that he's religious and yet you're just letting your tongue just say all kinds of things, you're gossiping about other people, you're talking about how bad they are, you're talking about how bad that other person did you wrong, you're talking about how this person should have done this and, and you wanted them to do that, all of this, you have not bridled your tongue. 
You know what a bridle is? It's put on a horse so that the horse will go where you want it to go. If it doesn't have a bridle on, it'll just go anywhere. And you can't really steer or direct that horse to where you want it to go. It just goes off on its own. That's the way it is when you don't bridle your tongue. It just goes on, off on its own, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. I'm sure we all know people like that. It's especially hard to be a man of few words after you've had two cups of coffee. Until about five hours later when you're in need of that second cup of coffee, then you don't want to talk much. You're just kind of trying to stay awake, you know. Huh? huh? What? Oh. Oh, where was I now? Never mind. Verse 27 then says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So what he's saying, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, visit orphans and widows in their trouble. You go, well, wait a minute, I don't have any time to visit orphans and widows. I'm doing stuff for myself. I mean, I, I've got plans for myself. I want to get this. I want to have that. I want to do that. I've got to work so I can earn money because I want to get all of these things that I think will make me happy. God is saying, no, you don't get it. True wisdom, godly wisdom would tell you that happiness is not in the material things of this life. Happiness is not in putting yourself first. Happiness is in putting others first. Visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble. You say, oh, it's depressing. I don't want to go and do that. I got all these problems, that house that that orphan lives in. I don't like going there. It doesn't smell good, you know. I've got better things to do. I don't want to be seen being with those poor people. I do. You see, because I'm poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may think you're rich. You may think that you're high in society. But the one who will be exalted is the one who humbles himself before God. But the one who's proud and haughty, as the book of Proverbs says, will be brought low. Think of others more highly than you think of yourself. And by the way, that happiness that you're looking for in buying all of those things and wealth and possessions of, of this life and this world, you're not going to find that happiness there. You know where you'll find that happiness? and caring for the widows and the orphans in their trouble. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. So what are you doing when those times of trials come along? What will you do when your friends and even your family don't want anything to do with you anymore because you're a believer in Jesus the Messiah? Are you going to just quietly lower your eyes from heaven to the lowly things of this world? Are you going to compromise your faith and not stand for Jesus anymore? Are you going to take a deep breath, put your eyes forward on the horizon, and keep going forth? Are you going to set your heart on the kingdom of God, set your heart on heaven? Are you going to fall for the devil's lies, or will you be the one standing in faith in God? Today is your day of decision. What you do right now, 
can change the course of your life. It can change the course of everything you have in everlasting life if you take the stand for Jesus as Messiah and Lord today. Why don't you give your life to Him right now? If you call on Him, He's going to hear that cry and He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from the darkness. He'll shine His light on your heart and you'll be given newness of life. He'll change you into a new person and throw all that old bad history and luggage and baggage away. You'll be completely new, given a new start. And He'll give you everlasting life in heaven. That's guaranteed by God Himself. That's His promise. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And to receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. Just repeat after me. God, I do want to know You and have real peace in life. I believe on Your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to You. Thank You, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, God heard you. And He's already started working in your life. A seed's been planted deep down in your heart. Over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful changes that God is making in your heart. So get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him every day in His Word and talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do wonderful things in your life. Amen. <laughs>